Super 32 is in the books, folks, which means it's time to start planning for the Spartan Combat Nationals coming back to Jacksonville, Florida this April 8th through the 10th. Russell Beach, Folkstyle, Freestyle, and Greco at the Spartan Combat Nationals. Register now at SpartanCombat.com. What I'm doing is giving back to these athletes that are working so hard and going through that grind. We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the, the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it, it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's, it's 5% of the ingredient. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort. It humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. You know, if I look back at my time, I spent wrestling. If it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Wrestling Changed My Life podcast presented by Spartan Combat. This is Ryan Warner, your host. It's Monday, November 1. College wrestling season begins tonight, folks. Buffalo and the University of Wisconsin wrestle. Be sure to tune in. And without further ado, let's get to today's episode with the great Tony Rotundo, one of the best photographers in the game, if not the best. Tony and I have been partnering for a long time, and a lot of the photos we use for this show are from Tony's website, Wrestlers Are Warriors. His story through the sport is amazing, and I really hope you enjoy this episode. If you want to check out Tony's photos, please go to his website. Again, it's wrestlersarewarriors.com. He has everything tagged and organized by the wrestler. You can search. It's amazing. Wrestlersarewarriors.com. Fan of the week goes to Rico Blakely, a listener of this podcast, a former Harvey Twister. Shout out to an Illinois guy. Thank you, Rico. We greatly appreciate the support, man. And that's it, folks. Let's get to the interview with the great Tony Rotundo. Tony Rotundo, welcome to the podcast, sir. Thank you very much. Appreciate you uh, having me on. And, you know, I'm really excited to see where you start because I love that you don't start right at people's beginning. Like, hey, how'd you get involved in the sport? So I'm I'm super excited to see where the entry point is going to be for this. But before we start, I want to give you props because you're doing an amazing job. And I really, really appreciate the podcast. But the documentaries are just top notch and it's not easy. Takes a lot of research, a lot of writing to tell a good story and you're doing an amazing job and I'm super proud of you and uh, thank you for helping to amplify the sport. I am so honored. Thank you, sir. It means a lot coming from a master of your craft. So thank you very, very much. I appreciate it. And to your point, the starting point, <laughs> we're going Berkeley high school, 90, All right. 92, 93, somewhere in there. It was later than that, but yeah. That, Take, I, I, how'd you yeah. get there? Great, 
great entry point, right? So I had taken a break from the sport. So, you know, we'll, we'll get to this, but I grew up in the sport. I mean, it, it, was, it was my life from when I was a baby because my dad was a coach and very involved. Um, I took a break when I moved from the East Coast to the West Coast in 92. And I took a break for a number of years and it was super helpful for me to really just fall in love with the sport again. But, but around 2000, I was like going to the gym and um, I would pass by Berkeley high and it was around the start of the wrestling season. And I'm like, "Eh, maybe I'll drop in and just, you know, kind of get a, get the smell of the gym again, you know, (laughs) which is unique. And and pretty wild at times, but um, <laughs> I, I stopped in and there's a very small program and um, two really good coaches, but they were kind of phasing out and they immediately put a whistle in my hand and put me out on the mat to officiate. I mean, literally the next day, like I, I stopped in and practice the season had just started and they were like, we'd love to have help. And so the next day I was coaching and I was wrestling with the guys and I was not a, I'm 54 now. So (laughs) I was not a spring chicken. And, you know, I felt like I kind of needed to prove a little bit and I probably didn't, but I got in there and scrapped and got my back (laughs) wrenched. I mean, I think it was like half Nelson day and and a, (laughs) a kid a lot bigger than me was trying to throw me around and, yeah, it the, the my wrestling days pretty much ended right there. You know, I, I haven't really wrestled live since then. Um, but yeah, so I got involved and it was really good. It was it, what I really loved is they had a great girls and women's program, and that really intrigued me. And I I contributed there, um, particularly just being sensitive to the the girls that, and what they needed. And you know. The, the guy said so that um, Brad Itakazu was the head coach and he wrestled in Bakersfield and it was just like tough grind, you know, just, just no, there's no crying in this room kind of thing. <laughs> and, and one, one girl who's gone on to great success and became a lawyer and stuff. She, she started crying one day and Brad was like, what is, what is happening here? And I said, look, let me talk to her. And so we went out in the hall and she was having some family issues and stuff like that. And she really later years later was like really appreciative of the fact that like girls need to be treated a little bit different. I mean, they, they can talk, they're tough and they can grind, but sometimes mm-hmm. we get emotional in life and it's just, it happens. So um, I coached there for five years, but toward the end of it, um, I really wasn't getting out of it. What I, what I wanted in wrestling. And I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do next, but, you know, I, I, I grew up w- with the, a really big program, a high school program, and I wanted to walk in and ha- end up to be Clovis, you know, and I was mm-hmm. like the fourth assistant coach. And it turned out I wound up for the last year, I was the head coach and it was a disaster um, because I, my heart really wasn't in it. We had about six kids. And so three That's of them. That's it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, you know, so you're in your babysitting four, and then there are two kids who actually want to scrap. And it's very difficult when that happens, you know. Um, But counter to that, like to get a program to have 40 kids in the room, you need a a club program, you Mm -hmm. know, you need to do what Steve Sanderson did, you know, like listening to Kyler's interview, um, starting with a hundred little kids running around and that's in the evenings after high school practice. 
And that's what my dad did. He, he built a program in Clarence, New York, which is outside of Buffalo, um, by just putting in the work for 20 years. You know, it's you, 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 the high school programs, you know, so, and I knew that with Berkeley, like I knew I needed to put in the time with elementary school kids, junior high kids, high school kids, and it was going to take 15 years. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have that. I, I didn't have that patience to do that. And so I was looking for something else to do in the sport when I got into photography. And then it was just an absolute perfect fit and light bulbs were going off. Like this, this is the thing I've never questioned it or looked back. And that happened. I started shooting around 2006. So, so yeah. John Sachs introduces it to you. Why yeah. was it so clear as day for you? You know, I don't know. I, it, it is I, there. If anybody's had the notion of love at first sight and it's it's not necessarily like you fall in love with a person or a thing or a task or whatever. It's just I ran into him at our North Coast section tournament, which is a state qualifier. And he was up in the stands and he was pissed because they wouldn't let him on the floor. And he had already shot like Olympic trials and like some really world championships. And so he was peeved. And they were, he was sitting next to us and I just asked him, what, what do you, what do you do with the photos? And he said, well, I put them up on the internet and I have been in tech for a long time. And so I knew how to build websites and stuff like that. And I guess I just had never thought of that, but that was the, the second he said that it was like this, you know, shining light, like that, that's what I'm going to do. And I never, from that moment, I mean, I had to finish that season and then coach the next season. So this actually probably was around 2004. The whole um, next season too. Yeah. I had it. Yeah. Why? There were, yeah. Cause, cause um, Brad had some family issues. His wife was very sick. And so we sat down and had a meeting and it was one of those like, Hey, you talk first, you know, cause I was going to tell him, Hey, I'm not, I'm not really loving this. I, I think I need to pull back on it. And because we were kind of co-coaching at the time. And he said, I, I did, I, he spoke first. So I was going to tell him, you know, I'm, I'm kind of done. And he said, um, my, my wife is very sick and I'm not going to be able to coach next year. And I was like, well, I got to do it. You know, yeah. I mean, I guess I could have walked away, but I was, I was invested with the kids and so I could have walked away and said, well, they need to find a new coach. But I was like, I'll I'll do one more year. And it, you know, my heart wasn't in it. And I didn't I didn't have like the infrastructure of like parents who used to wrestle and they bring their kids and they they love it. And they, you know, like it's it's a it's a city school, essentially in Berkeley. And so, you know, it's not the burbs or the country where there's like a, a rich wrestling history and so these kids are all first generation wrestlers as it were and so without I I didn't have anyone to keep score I didn't have anyone to help me roll up the mats I mean it was and and I wasn't putting in the the effort to try to find that it was like exhibition I mean you know I I I had to keep score in some of the dual meets because there were no kids that were knew how to keep score and there were like no parents there at all and so it was very much like intramural, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in my mind, I wanted to be Clovis. I mean, not that yeah. that was a reality, but I wanted to be like, I wanted to be part of a big program. And this is just life sometimes, you know, doesn't work out the exact way that you envision it or that you plan it. Um, and so you roll with it. And I, I 
you know, I'd say I let the kids down, but they, again, I mean, I like the kids, but they were just horsing around, you know, um, we had one really good kid, but he, before the section qualifier, like the first set of sections qualifying for state the weekend before he went and wrestled freestyle for the first time ever without me there. And he hurt his shoulder. And so my best kid, am I really the only wrestler on the team at that time? Um, who's a great guy now and a model for Southwest airlines. Hmm. Um, uh, and, and also works for them, but, uh, he hurt his shoulder. I mean, my only kid, uh, who, you know, had a shot, a long shot, but he had a shot at qualifying for state. He like wrenched his shoulder and he was pretty much done for the season, like right before the, the you know, regionals or whatever. So that, you know, that that's where like I had stayed in touch with John. And so that year ends, or maybe it was at the North coast that year that I ran into John. And then the next year I was like, Hey, you know, I really want to help you out. And um, and it was just fantastic from that point forward. Yeah. So what, what happened next? Did you buy a camera? Did you already have one? Yeah, I had a, a crappy digital camera. Um, and I went to a tournament and got some decent shots and I still have all this old stuff. Right. But I, I got some decent shots and I think he, he realized like, okay, this person has potential. Like it's just not all crap. And, uh, I loved it. I mean, I loved, you know, even though we had a crappy team when I was there, I was always super competitive. I'm, I'm my father's son. So it was just like mm -hmm. intense and like never talked to people like, you know, just, you know, that wrestling face. And the day I walked in with a wrestling camera, it was just awesome. I hi to everybody friends with everybody is totally neutral. Right. Mm -hmm. And I just loved that feeling of being at a tournament where I'm just, I I'm, I'm neutral. I get to pick favorites, but I'm totally neutral and I just enjoying the experience. And it was way better for me uh, than trying to be on a team and be competitive and stuff. How long from that moment until you're at the 2007 NCAA tournament? Uh, so I started in earnest in 2006. So I, I didn't get the NCAA tournament in 2006. I, I was still just contributing to, to John and just really, I didn't have good gear and stuff. Um, so I, I really started to get the bug in, in, in kind of, kind of around the time of NCAAs in 2006. And I did some freestyle stuff and, uh, and did like Sunkissed and really started to enjoy it. And then you start to get good shots. It's a little like golf. You, you're like, oh, I'm good at this. And then you have a failure. You know, you just like have a crappy day and you're like, oh, maybe I'm not very good at this. And then you get some good shots and you're like, okay, maybe this will work. And it's a little bit like a drug, right? You get, you kind of, you, you get a good shot and get really excited about it. Um, I got, I got early on, I got a really great shot of Spencer Mango, just like leaping in the air. And I got a series of shots of it. And it was like, oh, this is, this is really cool. Um, and I started investing in gear and, you know, I had a day job. I've always had a day job. And I, early on, I was like, well, I could quit my day job and try to make photography my thing, but you're just, you're hustling and you have to do weddings and it's just not as fun. And, and I wouldn't be able to afford the travel and the gear and all that stuff. So, um, I, I was making pretty good money. And so I started investing in gear pretty, pretty early on. Um, and just really thinking hard about what gear I wanted. And I'm, I like gadgets. I like, you know, trying to find the lightest 
monopod or, you know, the best this or the best that to travel with and stuff. So, yeah. And then 2007 NCAAs was, was pivotal be, just because it was so big. Fun fact, I walk on the floor. First time I walk on the floor, it's like the, you know, the, it's for the prelims and stuff. I physically run into Dan Gable. Uh, (laughs) It's like I rounded the corner and I'm in awe. I'm like, my jaws dropped and I'm like, I can't believe in the lights and all that. And I bump into Dan Gable and I I was just like, wow, this is, this is amazing. This is not Berkeley high school. Were you still on your own at this point? Are you at tech fall? Well, yeah, I was with tech fall for about five years. And early on, I mean, I was just so excited to be there. I just gave him photos and we didn't watermark them or anything. And he would compile the pages um, like he, he would he would kind of create the HTML pages um, and the photos are tiny. Uh, they weren't captioned on the photo. He, he would if you go to his old archives, like the captions are below the photos. So like there's not and then there's no you know photo by. Um, and I was fine with that. You know, I, I was just having fun and he, he was really showing me the ropes and helping me get credentials and stuff like that. So I was good with it. Um, and then, and then, you know, over time, I just started to develop my own style and li- literally the first date with my wife, the very first date we had, I described, and this is four years into it. And I, I described what, and she was like, why don't you have your own website? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> That's a great idea, actually. Yeah. So um, I, I then transitioned onto my, my own. I, there were some things I wanted to do with the website and, you know, just where I wanted to shoot and starting to get credit. I, things would frustrate me. Like he would post photos of the world's, like the 2009 world's, which I went and he didn't go. And then I see in social media at the time or in forums, like, hey, John, great photos from, you know, Herning, Denmark. And I'm like, uh, those are mine. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And then we just, we broke up essentially. And I went and did my own thing on my own path with wrestlers, our warriors. And so how, at that point, how often are you going to tournaments? Like every weekend throughout the year? At that point, it was just an absolute obsession. And I was obsession uh, completely, completely obsessed. Cause I loved it, but also I, I wanted to get better at the craft. And mm. so, I mean, I was going to every high school tournament. I mean, every single weekend and then duels during the week and stuff. Um, and then I started shooting other sports, I mean, other high school sports. Um, I just was really starting to get into sports photography at that point. And I would come home and I would process and from, you know, I, I really credit John with um, kind of driving a hard, uh, a hard ship in the sense that, um, I would come home and we'd have to get the photos processed as quickly as possible and post them. And every photo gets, you know, some love. Right. And not everybody does this where uh, one speed and two, uh, they have to look great. Um, and 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 I, it, it's not surprising. I mean, I'm, I'm a hard worker. I like to hustle. I like to grind. Um, but that means that after a tournament, you know, the wrestling ends, the 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 art begins yeah. only at that point. Right. So. Um, you know, trying to get a hundred photos up before you fall asleep and then, and then on the plane home and then all day on Sunday. And then during the week, late at night after dinner, um, you know, I, I have a day job, my wife and I manage an apartment building. Uh, so we'll have dinner and she'll be getting ready for bed. And I'll be like, I got, I'm going to work. And I'll work till 2am quite often, right. Just trying to crank photos out. Um, but 
that's the way you, you know, you have to, to, to put in that effort mm-hmm. to, to get a great product and to get recognized. And so, yeah. So you're a night person more than a morning person. You know, I, I tend to be, I, I, I do love sleep, but I tend to, yeah, stay up later. My natural thing is like up a little bit later in the morning and then staying up, up a little bit later. It's yeah. funny. Cause everything you're saying, I can just relate to on so many levels. It's like when you're, when I'm really getting into the thick of an audio documentary, which I just started one yesterday and had, I can all announce it on this show, but it, it basically it's like back to boot camp, right? It's 4.30 a.m. mornings and I'm a morning person. So I'm mm-hmm. like, all right, 5 to 8.30 is my time. So 5 a.m. to 8.30 every morning. And it's really in the thick of the auto documentary seven days a week. That's just a beautiful time of the day, though. And you could do a lot after that, you know? And if I don't have a busy day because I'm in outside sales, I will, I'll do more throughout the day. But no matter what, 5 to 8.30, seven days a week for four months, that's a lot of time. So you've done the same thing. Yeah, just uh, flip it. But you know, it's yeah. funny. If I come back from overseas and my rhythm is off, my and my circadian rhythm is off, and like I'll wake up at six in the morning and I'll work from like six till nine. I'm like, I love this. <laughs> this is awesome. Uh, I should do this every day. And then I fall back into a more natural rhythm. And yeah, it's pretty funny. I, I love mornings when I'm up and I'm feeling good, but I end up just sleeping in. How did you study getting better shots? And like, how did you like self-evaluate? Just by shooting a lot. And you you mean back in the day when I was learning? Yeah, but like, yeah, exactly. Like the first three or four years, like, were you YouTubing out? Like, who was your standard that you were learning from? No, I, 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 I did a lot of, I did it on my own. I mean, I, um, did you read any books? Nope. No YouTube, I, no books. Wow. I knew photography. I had taken photography classes. So I knew photography. I knew what F-stops did and shutter speed does and ISO and that sort of thing. So I had photog- a photography background. Got it. And so the camera gear didn't scare me at all. And there was a lot of trial and error, you know, mm-hmm. and we were using flash. The cameras weren't good enough. And so these the bad lighting we're using flash and that adds an element of this, like, well, you know, back in the day, the old flashes, it's like, well, I'm, I'm blowing out the shots. And so you have to dial the flashback so that it's just a fill flash. Um, all that stuff was just trial and error. And I mean, I can't, I mean, yeah, I probably watched a YouTube video once in a while just to be like, I can't dial this in and I got to figure it out. So it, I'm not prone to, you know, I'm not, I'm not the, the dad who refuses to ask for directions, you know, in the car. <laughs> Um, I, I'm humble and I I've been humbled, you know, quite a bit. Um, I'd ask other people in the wrestling community, but not too much. Um, I, I actually learned a lot more. I shot for a while, um, roller derby, roller derby and women's roller derby. And those folks taught me a lot, particularly about how to set up a flash off camera. So with remotes and stuff like that. Um, but there was before wrestling or, or no, this is in the middle of it. Okay. This is when I, I like around 2007, 2008 or so I just was obsessed and I was Mm -hmm. just shooting, shooting all the time, football, derby, this, that, like, it just really was my passion. It still is, but I, I only really do wrestling now. 
but um, the Derby community, they just shared ideas a lot more. You know, they just would, you'd stand around each other and look at a camera and talk about, you know, different settings and stuff like that. And there was more, more sharing. And I don't know, I didn't get that as much early on in the wrestling community, maybe a mm-hmm. little bit. Um, but and in, in, in it, I shoot Nikon. And so like John shoot Canon and I couldn't, if, if you showed me, I couldn't turn on a camera, a Canon camera right now. Like, I don't know. And people ask me all the time about gear and I'm like, I can only help you with Nikon because I don't know. Canon. it's like a PC. I couldn't, I couldn't do anything on a PC. I'm a, I'm a Mac guy. And so, yeah, I, um, I, I don't know. You just pick up stuff and it's just, you just shoot, shoot, mm-hmm. shoot, shoot. That's the, if, if people want to get into it and they're serious about it, go shoot everything you can possibly shoot. It doesn't matter what you're shooting. There will be some good action and uh, the light will be wonky and you got to just figure things out. And you, so it's just having a passion for it. And the, the lighting is something that really fascinates me because over the past year, I've shifted more into some video stuff as well. And that is like, Holy smokes, that is just such another element or another realm of it. And I kind of think about it as the lighting and the action and then the post-production lighting. So are you doing your own post-production and color correction on all the photos? Yeah. Do you do every one or are some of them good as is? uh, It's pretty rare that they're good as is because, you you, you know, it's... I'm using a monopod, so that means they're not always exactly uh, straight, and so there will be a little bit of of fixing there. I have to keep the camera a little bit wide. If you if you go too tight, you're going to miss potentially some action. And the the shots that are really tight in, or that I'm shooting with a long lens, right in on their faces where they're bonking heads and Greco and stuff, they're really great and they're dramatic and they're beautiful. But if a throw happens, you miss the throw, and I am just completely obsessed with making sure I get any throw that happens. So I shoot wide. I keep my camera wide so that, you know, hopefully not too much of anybody's body parts are like out of frame. So that means that I need to crop. It's probably 75% of the shots. I'll need to crop a little bit. So everything gets a little bit of love and in Lightroom, which is Adobe Lightroom, mm-hmm. you can, you can do a sync. So you can, you can, you can adjust one photo and then sync all the others. Um, but it, you know, the, the, depending on where you are on the mat and the lighting on the mat and like the color of the mat, like, you know, with the UWW mats, the center logo is light blue. The, main body of the mat is kind of dark blue and then there's an orange circle and then back to blue well depending on where they are on the mat that's going to affect the reflective light on the faces and the, the their bodies so if they're over the light blue it's it's going to be a little bit brighter if they're mm-hmm. over the dark blue it's going to be a little bit darker and then if they're over the orange their their body color the skin tones are going to turn orange so depending on where they are on the mat and depending on how the lights are set up. So sometimes if the lights are too tight to the circle that as soon as they start to go out of bounds, it gets real dark. And so you really have to adjust that or, and, or um, when they go to the corner for the coaches, this is in freestyle, but when they go to the corner um, with their coaches, oftentimes the light is different there. And so then all of these photos are in line um, by the order of I shot of the timing that I shot mm-hmm. them. So, you know, I can set, like most of the photos to be relatively close to how I'd want them to look. But each one usually ends up getting a little bit of love. That's so much, that's so yeah. much time spent. I mean, cause how many, 
when yeah. you, how many photos will you do that actually go on the website after a big weekend? Good question. So it's somewhere, but depending on who's wrestling and, and how many matches there are and stuff like that, it might be three to 4,000 per, per session. So like, that's what it was like at, um, at the world's this in Oslo. Um, and so then you're trying to grab the best 100 and it's very, very difficult to get your speed down and your confidence down that you're grabbing the best 100 processing those during the break, posting those during the break, then you shoot the finals. Um, and then you grab maybe 50 to hundred, uh, after the finals, uh, and post those. And it might be one in the morning, two in the morning. Um, but the real heavy lift is when you get back home and is going through all 4,000 and grabbing like the top, you know, 300. And that just takes a ton of time. You, you whittle it down, you know, you go from 4,000 to 2,000 from 2,000 to 600, 600 down to your top 300. Then you caption them, you know, you got to grab the, the results so that, uh, later when you do searches, the names are right. Um, caption them then you start the post-processing work that's that's why i stay up till two it's it's you know by midnight Yikes. yeah so that that is like a day and a half or two days for per um per set and or per session it's crazy um, you do that twice though like you do it at the event just to get some stuff up but then do it later to get the more complete picture yeah absolutely that, really? that, that yes that's the grind that i mean as as i've been saying that's the job and people, people, you know, nobody's really doing to the extent that I'm doing it. I mean, some, some folks are started now, but to do that work, put, put in that work. And so, you know, there's putting things on social media is one thing, giving things to the media is one thing, but like really going back and doing a very thorough, um, you know, processing of all of these shots. And it's not just us. I mean, some other folks will only shoot one school or one country. And I'm like, a, I see myself as a historian, so I, I don't discriminate. I mean, I lean USA heavily, mm -hmm. but if I'm doing prelims from worlds, it's just about good shots. And sometimes it's just about like, well, this is compelling because this is the first time someone from Baharan or wherever right. like wrestled and someone may want this shot in 10 years or, you know, so there's a little bit of that going into it. Um, but yeah, it, it's a lot of work. It, you see yourself it, as a historian. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Why it's, do you say that it's where like art and history kind of, well, because people are going to want these photos, you know, it's like, uh, if, if you want a shot of, I don't know, name, name somebody from 2006, you know, uh, NCAAs, you're looking for a shot because, um, all of a sudden somebody gets like a coaching job or that school is like, Hey, we really like a shot of them, uh, wrestling. Uh, do you have anything? And so, you know, and people just like to go back and remind themselves. I mean, yeah, there, there's video and that's great. But um, I just think having still images from these events that will hopefully be around for a long time, um, which is another topic, but uh, hopefully they're around for a long time and people can go back and either enjoy them or they need them for, you know, whatever they're doing in media or storytelling. Why do you say that's another topic? Well, it's, it's an interesting construct. So we're at a place where everybody's pu publishing their content online. What happens if you die? And so like, uh, and that's macabre, I get, but 
um, let's say, so I have a smug mug account, right? If, if I, if that's smug mug account, so the smug mug goes away, hopefully they come up with a solution, but all those photos go away. If, if I, if I die and no one pays smug mug the money to keep that account going, all the photos are gone. No, no one can access them. You still have the hard drives and all that, or do you? Yeah, yeah. I have, I have, I have multiple hard drives, um, multiple, multiple hard drives. And my plan, and I need to execute this pretty soon is to send hard drives to like um, the USA wrestling Mm -hmm. and the museums um, and basically package it up and say, here are all my photos for the first 10 years of my career up through, you know, say the 2021 worlds. Um, but the thing is, and, and this gets, starts to get really deep is like, what happens in a hundred years? Like what, you know, is smug mug still going to be around is mm-hmm. Sam Herring still going to be paying. He's my, he's my guy. He's going to, I'm going to keep him around. He's like the smartest kid. I know the smartest yeah. young person I know. And he, and I'm going to be, give him a drive, um, and directives and all this stuff. But what I'm getting at is like, so Nikon, the file is a raw file. And then um, the, all the corrections that happen are on a sidecar file called an XMP file. Um, I, I've lately started creating JPEGs to go along with those because I feel like JPEG is the file that maybe will last longest. But what happens when no one can read a raw file anymore in 50 years? What happens if people can't plug the drives in because USB is different? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So I don't know the answer to this. And it would it just breaks your heart to think that all this work would just kind of disappear. And in the in the old days with film, at least you could share a photo album. You, there are slides that will last quite a long time. There are photos, you know, I mean, photos last quite a long time. And you can send the photos or the slides to someone, but now it's sending drives. I mean, you're thinking, I'm sure you will be thinking about. I'm about thinking this. about it right now as you're saying it. Exactly. And in fact, it's like one of the things I think about if I ever wake up at three in the morning and I can't go back to bed, my only thought is, is SoundCloud going to be around tomorrow? Because exactly. if not, I know it's not the big boy platform, but it's just so easy to use. So I haven't switched over to Libsyn yet, but yeah, even Libsyn could go down. Like any of these companies could easily go up in a puff of smoke. You never know. Yeah. Yeah. I think that you're lucky that a lot of this stuff is recorded and um, hopefully video playback happens. But again, it's like, it's like, we're t- like, t- think, you know, a hundred years from now, mm-hmm. not, not that anyone will care. Maybe they will. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, you go back and you watch um, what was the Rome Olympics where it was outside and stuff yeah. like that. And you see photos of that. And maybe there's some video of that. I don't, it was at the early sixties. That's maybe when blue Bob pin Habibi. Right. And so what, what, around what year was that? 60. Right. So you can see video of that and it, it's pretty crappy, but you can see that, but then, you know, what if you go back further? Right. And so, and granted, I know the video, like, yeah, you know, 60 video is pretty established, but stuff from the twenties, photos from the twenties, stuff from the 1800s. So I, I don't know. And, and maybe that's, I don't want to sound egotistical to think that like my photos are going to last and be relevant a um, hundred years from now, mm-hmm. but I'd love that to happen. I would, I would love that um, if people could access them and, you know, it would take effort, right? Because there are hundreds of thousands of these photos. And so like, even if USA Wrestling or one of the museums wanted to put them on display, they'd have to go through 
you know, a million photos to figure out which ones to display and how to display them. But yeah, that's my, my plan. I, I think about this stuff. Um, we're not, we're not going to live forever. And, and, and if anybody has had someone past who's had like really great directives, you know, so isn't it, is this is such a sidebar, but like when people pass away the process of like, like the process is really pretty short in most cases, right? It's sort of like you have a partner and they're alive and then something happens an accident happens. And it's just like three days later, you're at a funeral and you're like, mm-hmm. that is just terrible. More directives you can have, the, the, the more envelopes that you can have, sealed envelopes so you can be like, hey, here, here's what, I, what I'd like you to do so your family isn't arguing about what happens and stuff like that. I think about that stuff. It's just, it's like helping your family out um, so that they don't have to make as many decisions. And the wrestling family, you're going to be helping out by doing all that because think about how serious you take it and how much time and effort goes into the shots and the, and to the post-production. And so, man, I just think that's awesome. You're, you're thinking that far ahead. And yeah. to your point about all the history stuff, one of those Google searches I do at least once a year, Tony, is world's oda- oldest known photo. I just love looking at old, old photos. It's so creepy. Cool. It, not creepy, but it's just like a time capsule. You know, it's so interesting to me. Yeah, that's neat. I've never done that. I do it all sure at least once a year. It's kind right. of blurry, but uh, yeah, I love yeah, that I'm you sure. think about that. So you've mentioned a couple of times that your, your pops was a, was a really big wrestling guy. And I've read that you were kind of growing up in the era where weight, com- weight cutting was kind of like championed almost. What was it like back in those days? It, it was, it was difficult. I mean, I, I, yeah, my, I, I was on a wrestling, I was the little baby on the wrestling mat. I was the kid that would get watched by the cheerleaders and they would give me kisses and I'd get embarrassed and stuff. Like I, my favorite thing in the world was riding the mats when they put them on those dollies and would roll them. Like this is high school level, Yes. but yes. I was like five years old and they would let me ride on the mats and it was just thrilling. It was the best thing ever. <laughs> um, so it, it's, it's, it's been my whole life. I, I don't know life without wrestling. So you're going to ask me later how it changed my life. And I'm going to say like, it's just, it, it's been my life. You know, it, I can't say that it changed it. It just, it shaped it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, yeah, my dad, my, but he was, he was very intense and um, my, my dad as a coach. And so he was coaching high school. Um, and then he, 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 you know, we did nothing half-assed. So he had a huge club, a kid club, and he would, in, in addition to us just going to tournaments, uh, we would sell wrestling gear. So he would he would buy gear from El Bevilacqua uh, wholesale and get it shipped to us, and then we would load a van up. And so we would never be able to just go to a wrestling tournament and just go wrestle. It was like we were helping set up. We were unloading vans full of wrestling shoes. My mom was selling gear at a table. It was just like a complete 110% commitment to it. And I didn't always love it. And, you know, when it came time to wrestle like competitively, yeah, around 10 years old, I was sweat. I was in sweats. I remember one time we are on our way to a tournament and I was down like in front uh, underneath the heat blasting on the, uh, in front of the, the passenger seat in sweats, trying to sweat off a couple pounds, um, on the way. And that was at 10 years old. Oof, man. And yeah, it, it definitely took a toll. Uh, eating disorders are a real thing in the wrestling community and just 
breaking your brain like repeatedly at a young age that you just you can't you can't you know give your body what it's asking for um and and we didn't really have good knowledge we did it all wrong i did every single thing wrong diet mm-hmm. pills pee pills everything you know just like and in high school in particular we would we would you know it was just up and down we would let's say you know you you would you would come in on monday and be overweight and you would do anything you could to get down to weight for the dual meet on wednesday and then you'd balloon your weight up wednesday night and then have to cut thursday for a friday or saturday tournament then saturday night and sunday it was just like you know strap on the feed bag and then you come in heavy on monday it was the absolute worst thing you can do that super bad for your body super bad for your liver um but that's what we did and i i i yeah i i think this new paradigm is way better um i i do think getting into shape and air quote fighting shape is a good thing and i think that you know it's not to say that kids should never lose weight it's that they should get into the right shape and and wrestle at that weight um and you know do do everything they're doing you know you're gonna lose a little bit of weight in the wrestling room and running and doing all that stuff but um yeah i think it it was super unhealthy and and the top kids i mean they were so skinny and losing 25 30 pounds it's just, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, the stories that, that were happening at the time when I was a kid and it takes its toll. I mean, I didn't want to wrestle anymore. By the time I was maybe a junior in high school, I was like, I don't want to do this because the weight cutting sucks so bad. Yeah. And is that why you got out of it for so long when you moved to California? No, no, it, this, that was way later. I, um, I finished high school and i was i was i was really i was incredibly um technically proficient and so when i was young i was very successful and even uh like i did the best in high school my sophomore year like i i got second in our state qualifier and at the time you've heard these stories only one person qualified for states and Mm -hmm. new york state had you know they had 14 you know sections and that was it 14 kids in the weight for state Yeah. So you had to win, like I had to win section six and I just never did. I got second my sophomore year. And, um, how many guys never made it then? Yeah, exactly. Oh my God. Yeah. And, and fun fact. So I, I posted this recently on, um, social media, my, my senior year, my dad wanted me to drop down to 98 pounds, which of course we had three pounds, but it was, so it was like one one. Um, but, uh, Jeff Prescott was, in our section at that weight, it was completely illogical. No, no one was beating Prescott. I mean, he and I scrapped when we were kids. Mm-hmm. I, I think I did beat him in freestyle once, but like by the time he was a freshman in high school, no one was beating him. He went on to great success in college. Oh yeah. Um, but it made, it was illogical. It's like, Hey, I'm not going to beat Prescott. Nobody's beating Prescott. Like nobody in the state, no, barely anybody in the country is going to beat this kid. Why do I, why am I sucking down for that? So I, I, rebelled and I got within a pound and then I didn't, I didn't make it. And I, I got fourth in our section at one Oh five. Um, but it didn't go well with my dad. He didn't handle it well at all. And that's where like now with the kids I'm mentoring and stuff like that, it's all love. It's all love. Cause that's like, that's what I didn't get. I got, you know, 
kicked out of the house for not making a weight cut. Literally? Yeah, literally. Yeah. Where'd you go? Anyways, uh, I stayed at my friend John Vesper's house, but I wanted to stay there anyways. I mean, I was done. Um, yeah, I was like that. So it, that wasn't a big deal. I mean, my dad was, I, I love my dad, but he's, he, he was just really had a different philosophy on how it all is supposed to work. And he had difficulty showing love or he does. I love him. Hi dad. <laughs> no I think he'd, he'd probably admit that. Yeah. Did he come but, and watch um, you wrestle at Buffalo at all? He did a little bit. I was, I was JV at, at university of Buffalo. So yeah, I, I got recruited. I got in on a, I, my grades were deplorable. I got in on a, a special talent admission, uh, wrestling for Ed Michaels at UB. Um, and I was kind of JV, but I was okay with that. And, uh, you know, my, my career was winding down. I knew that. Um, I think he knew that. So I was, I was like a practice partner. I got, I got in some JV matches and stuff, but I kind of had discovered beer and girls in college. And, <laughs> and that, that was sort of like, Hey, you, like the, here's another fun fact. Um, I, you know, I had a girlfriend and it was like a Friday night and I was staying with them in the dorms. And I'm like, what are you guys doing tomorrow, Saturday? And they were like, nothing probably just gonna hang out and have breakfast and then maybe go to the football game and i literally literally to that point had never really understood that there was a concept of not doing anything on a saturday like you're either literally cutting wood or helping my grandparents at the laundry shop or working out or wrestling or whatever and i just chilling you never just I i had never really it never entered my conscience to just chill like just i don't know not really doing anything it, it was like wow. this is cool we ordered pizza you know probably drank beer and it was like this is actually kind of nice um but you know then i got back to work and did good you know i, I so yeah I, I went to ub and i wrestled a little bit but i was coaching at that time too at my dad's kid club so i was still around it once you get a taste of that leisure life, when you've been uh, under the yeah, taskmaster, that's, that's crazy. I'm telling you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was, yeah. It, uh, when growing up, it was a lot of chopping wood and carrying water. It was literally chopping wood, cutting wood, carrying wood, and then up at 5 a.m. to water the chickens. And so, you know, the Sam Herring and everybody yeah. likes to be like, chop wood. I'm like, you know, you actually should chop some wood and carry some water because yeah that it's 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 fun at first and then it kind of sucks when your dad whistles to wake you up at six in the morning to go cut wood on sunday dang that, that was the reality though i didn't know it was that strict that was a reality i think that's why like for me processing wrestling photos is easy mm-hmm. i don't i don't have to hurt my back and shoulders and stomp through snow you know what I, you know what i mean so yeah if early on <laughs> you get the taste of that uh, in Buffalo, New York, in a blizzard, you're carrying wood through a forest. Um, everything else in life is easy. <laughs> well, and those stories are important because there's a lot of people who wrestled who have kind of those same stories that you have of where it was just like no fun, a lot of anger, a lot of like just mm-hmm. no love and super bad cutting weight. And just, that's just a reality for a lot of people. And that's a bummer, you know? Yeah. It is a it is a bummer, but those people are hopefully they they'll they'll go in two directions. They'll follow that path, and they'll 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 be very hard on their family and on themselves, um, which manifests itself on being hard on their family, 
or they'll go the other way. And I went the other way. I mean, I, I, um, I moved, we're jumping ahead, but I moved to San Francisco and just all, everything is just about love and communication and just had to do it different. I was built different than, than my dad. Um, and yeah, so, so for me, it was just all about respect and honor and like, just love. I, I, I'll, I keep repeating that, but that's just, that's just the way I am. That's your ethos. Yeah, that's my ethos, especially like, so now I've taken a huge break from any kind of coaching and, uh, and, uh, you know, I mentor these kids, uh, Jude Swisher and Sam Herring. And at Fargo, I got to use my wrestling coaching voice for the first time in about 12 years. And it, it felt really good. And I talked to Sam a lot about technique and break down his matches and stuff like that. And, you know, and, and then the, the Gibson brothers were on like kind of a chat thing and it's just about support and love and like, Hey, win or lose. I'm still going to love you guys. doesn't matter. Right. Try your hardest work hard. I know they work hard. I know they're trying their hardest. I know they care a lot. Um, yeah. And so it feels so good to just give that support. It feels so good. And you try to do that in life in general, right. To the people around you, you know, your partner, your friends, just, you know, give that support. And it's not always roses, you know, mm -hmm. you, it's not always perfect. And sometimes you fall back into, you know, like, you know, your, your, your parents mode, the parent mode and stuff like that. I'll yell at my dogs, you know, and <laughs> lose my patience with them. Yeah. Um, and then regret it immediately. Like five minutes later, I'm like, I'm sorry. I love you. <laughs> that, I guess that's one good thing that like, you know, if you, if you do lose your temper or lose your patience, I think is a better way to put it. Um, recognizing that and, um, and correcting that as quickly as possible. That's the thing where it's when, it's when, you know, somebody gets mad and it just goes on and on and on to the next day and you're getting the silent treatment or you're getting yelled at. And it's just like, man, I, I don't know. That's just not a fun way to. That can go on for weeks for some people. It's sometimes totally, a lifetime. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is true. ludicrous, you know? Yeah. Man. So that's, I love that we've hit on some of like the pivotal moments at the, the early stages of your photography, your background. Mm -hmm. When was your first Olympics? 2016. And it's a, it's a bit of a sore spot. Um, in Is the it? sense that, well, so 2008, I was too new to get to go, but I only by like a year and USA wrestling, USA wrestling, John went, um, Larry Slater went and this guy, Duncan Heath went and Duncan had shot before, but they, I think they kind of were like, Hey, we need somebody. And Duncan hadn't shot a lot of wrestling. I think he came in through uh, Larry Slater. And so I was like, man, I think I'm ready, but I, I, I didn't push it then. And then in 2012, London, they only had two credentials and I'm kind of the third guy just based on seniority. And so John Sachs went and, uh, and Larry Slater went and I got passed over. And then, and then 2016, I, I got, you know, I, I got to go through USA wrestling and the way it works with USA wrestling is you basically are going as a contractor. You're not really going as the USA wrestling photographer. You're just going, you're an independent contracting photographer whose credential is kind of approved by USA wrestling. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and it was, it was 2000, around 2012, 
it was right after that that John and I kind of split up um, in that. It was two years later. So you, you start to apply for credentials um, two years after each cycle. And uh, John said that he had gotten a credential for 2016 and thanked me for my contribution to Techfall. And that if I stuck around, I, it, was, it was before 2012. Gotcha. It was before 2012. And if I stuck around and shot for five more years with, for him, then I would go in 2016, assuming Techfall got a credential. And it was around that time, literally that phone call that I was like, I think I'm probably going to do my own thing here. You know, so um, so 12. Yeah, he 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 could have offered me that credential. He could have passed that to me, but he didn't. And that's fine. I understand it. It's a it's a thrill and it's an honor to shoot the Olympics. And so people aren't handing credentials to to one another very frequently. Um, so then were you expecting yes, going 2012, though? Like I in your mind, you were like, oh, 100 percent. I'm going. Yeah. So it hurt not to go. It hurt. It hurt a lot not to go. Yeah, for sure. And I, you know, to 2020, I wasn't sure if I was going, I did not get a credential through USA wrestling. Um, what? again, yeah, again, it went John Saxon, Larry Slater. And then, um, but I did get a credential through UWW and that one was like, you know, that's, they pay for your trip and that sort of thing. But we weren't sure because of COVID and all of this stuff, we weren't sure that we were actually going to get a credential or enough credentials, uh, for, for three photographers, um, so I had to sweat it out for years. Like, you know, um, Tim Foley called me two years out and was like, Hey, that email don't, I think I got you a credential. And the email was my credential had been declined because USA wrestling only had two. And he said, I think I got one for you. And then I had to wait over two, three and a half years. It was, a, it was the, <laughs> the biggest test of my patience, you know, to not, call fully every week and say what's the status what's the status um i did it every month but i felt that was progress um but yeah for like three and a half years i wasn't sure if i was going to get a credential to uh, 2020 and i did and it was great it was an honor to be there the worst question of all time but how different from rio to japan very just like night. I mean, was there any comparison at all in terms of the energy or like, was it just two totally different worlds? It was two totally different worlds. Yeah. There, you know, it's, it wasn't just the, the fans, which is, but that, that was a big part of it. I mean, you know, some great shots and great moments of the wrestlers jumping up into the fans and you just turn your camera on that. And those are great moments, but everything around it, I mean, everybody, you know, really no contact with anybody. I, I didn't go anywhere in in tokyo we were we like we're in a hotel we ate all our meals in the hotel uh and then we walked um to the arena it was about a five minute walk and i didn't literally didn't go anywhere other than the arena and the hotel for seven days and then usa had a party on the last night and that that was like the first time i'd actually seen the wrestlers you know in person outside the arena um, and so there was no interaction. There was no fun. There was no, uh, Hey, let's go check out other sports or anything like that. It was just work. No and grabbing drinks at night, like socializing, nothing like that, huh? No, I no, And, and it's a grind, right? You're, yeah. you know, like I said, I mean, I would, I would come up in and, and it, all the sessions were late or the evening session was really late because of time, you know, the, 
television broadcast time. So we wouldn't leave the arena till 10 and then go and literally just scarf down food and then start processing at 10 30 or 11 and process for two hours or more um and then get up and we had to be there early for uh we take photos and video right as they weigh in so the media team had to be there at you know like 8 a.m and so you know you're up till two or three or four Mm -hmm. Uh, processing photos and then up at eight and so there wasn't really an opportunity to go socialize and stuff um but i I got to hang out with foley i got to hang out with jason bryant um some but yeah it it's it's sometimes a lonely struggle (laughs) but it is there's something isn't it awesome though like when you're in the thick of that though like go ahead like day six or seven though it, it is. It is. You have to pace yourself. You have to know what your body can do. You have ups and downs. You know, you get emotional, you get tired, you, you know, you have good days and bad days, uh, but it's the job. That's the job. And I, I've mentioned this to a couple of people that um, shooting for UWW is a total honor, but um, it's completely and utterly, it's never mentioned. It's, it's completely expected that you're going to get great shots. They, there's, there's, they never say, Oh, hey, today we really need good shots like it, or nobody ever says like, hey, you know, you had a good day or a bad day. Um, it's just expected it, the, the grind. And so to get to that point, um, you have to be a great photographer and and have to be consistent and you cannot miss shots like you can't choke. You have to have redundant gear. You know, meaning that if yeah. like I have three cameras with me almost the all the time, like at the Olympics all the time or within within striking distance so that if a camera died within 15 seconds, I'm shooting again. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that know, consistency, all, all that. though, right, that's the level yeah. of professionalism. You're yeah, talking about? yeah, that's the way to put it. Right. Um, and so where you start to break down is, you know, maybe you're processing too many photos, maybe they only need, you know, 10. Uh, but so you're, you know, it's, it's easy to overproduce sometimes. Uh, but that'll bog you down and make you tired. If you're, you know, it's like, oftentimes I'm like, what am I doing? I'm processing 120 photos. Like they, they don't need it. The public doesn't need that. It's like, you know, I have a thing on my computer that says 25 photos and I never see it anymore. Right. It's a sticker. Um, and what that means is just like, don't overproduce, like get some sleep. You'll shoot better the next day. Uh, but it's hard because it's the Olympics and it's like, wow, this is a great shot. This is a great shot. And, you know, you just really want to want to get that stuff out there. And there's nothing like the sleep deprivation that comes with it. And the only <laughs> way I can relate to this is that I've only done one event like what you're talking about, where it's continually doing it. At the Olympic trials this year, we did a little series, first video series I did called Tokyo Dreams, where we followed around the Cornell guys for nine days leading up to the trials which means we got up at you know 8 a.m., filmed all day until about seven o'clock at night. And then my cousin and I would come back to our hotel room, order some food, and then I would edit it until about 3 a.m. and produce an eight-minute episode that night on the day's filming. And we wow. did that for five days in a row. And by yeah. the fifth night, sixth night, it was just like the sleep deprivation makes your emotions go crazy. You know, I'm so much quicker to snap. And then yeah. you get a good night's sleep and you're like, Ooh, all right, I feel good again. You know, you nailed it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We, we usually start pretty hard, you know, and then, and, and like, we'll go out and have beers, you know, or, 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 and for me, I'll bring my computer and be like, okay, I just need internet and some power and we'll hang out, stay out too late, 
And then you're right, you know, third or fourth day after that, like last session, I'll turn to my buddies and be like, I'm going to bed. Like I, I need 12 hours mm-hmm. of sleep or I'm going to cry <laughs> to coin my, my wife. My wife, my wife made up that phrase. I'm so tired. I'm going to cry. And I'm like, you know, it's true. Sometimes you're just like, I'm just so wiped out. Um, But yeah, uh, that's the job. I love how any great thing. Yeah. I mean, it's thank you. I really appreciate that. I just love how any creative journey, like you get into it. Day one goes better than you think. And you're feeling overconfident and that it doesn't have to be day one. Just like the first 25%, you're feeling good. And it's a false, it's a false feel good. And then the real, eating glass is like the middle 50. And then the last 25, you're good. Now you're a real pro and you're feeling good again. And like, what I mean is that when I do one of those audio documentaries, the actual editing is about a month period. And so at week, the first week might take me, or the first episode might take me 10 days, but by the end, episode seven of the Smiths took me 24 hours. So it's just like, you really can just hone it in. And I'm sure by you know the end of the Olympics for you, you're just feeling really, really good. Yeah, you're feeling good. It really helps to have your your friends win. <laughs> it yeah. helps a lot, right? Like that just motivates you. Hugging those guys with the, or the girls when they come off the floor was like the absolute highlight of my thing, you know, because there's no family there, True. right? And so it's just sort of like, yeah, it was great. It, when Adeline won in Oslo, she came on the floor. I ran around and was just like taking photos of her walking kind of off the mat. And then I was just like, Hey, you know, and gave her a big hug. And then she goes in for a second hug. Cause she's like, my dad's not here. So let me give you an extra hug. And cause here her dad and, and I am our pals. And yeah, I thought that was really cute and pretty yeah, awesome. That is awesome because you especially have a, a niche within wrestling, but then a, a super niche within women's wrestling. It seems like you really have your hooks in there and you're doing a lot there. How did that start? I've never questioned women's. I just always, I mean, wrestling is wrestling. If, if someone wants to put in the time and the effort, I, I, from the first day, I mean, um, I, Trisha Saunders wrestled at a kid tournament, an AAU tournament in Michigan. When I was a kid, it made big headlines. Her father had to sue AAU to get her to wrestle. And a crowd of people would come around the mat every time she wrestled. And I just remember at that time, I was probably six or seven. Uh, what's the big deal? Yeah. You know, um, my sister wrestled a little bit and they went on a tour in Japan, which, you know, girls wrestling was really popular at the time. And so she's 10 years younger than me. Um, so, you know, she wrestled a bit. So it just it was never a big deal. And now it's fantastic. I mean, being a high school coach, the, that was the highlight of my coaching at Berkeley is the girls would go to the national tournament and do really well. I mean, you you uh, you show them a couple good moves. Um, and again, Brad was like a power half guy, like legs and power half. And he would show this to these girls and they would go and beat up other girls and make them cry. And you're like, this is actually, you know, this is pretty cool that you can have a national champion, um, pretty, pretty young and pretty green. And some people see a negative in that. And I'm just like, I think that's awesome. And so I've never questioned it and it needs to be amplified. So I'm here to help amplify it in any way I can. And, on top of that, the, the women are just so much more fun to be around, like before, during and after a competition. They're just they're just mm-hmm. way funner and more <laughs> relaxed. And yeah, so I don't know. Um, I mean, and what about wrestle like a girl? That's kind of what I was referring to. Oh, like I you, see. OK, sure. You had well, that gal last week, right? Yeah, we were at the gal. It was beautiful. And I got to go as a guest, as an invited guest and sat at Sally's table. 
um, and didn't bring a camera. And my wife came and it was really nice and enjoyable. It's been a long time of a lot of work to kind of get invited to an event and not be shooting it. Um, so I was appreciative of that. And I made some donations to them and uh, a lot of photos to them and kind of whatever they need. Uh, I made some donations of photos for their auction. Um, but, I, you know, it's just you there it's a great cause and um they're doing great work and it's well run and i don't know i mean we're we're all gonna kind of contribute in one way or another and so i i contribute to a number of different things in wrestling but wrestle like a girl is a is a big one um yeah i'm happy to help them i think it's great in getting all these states sanctioned and iowa starting a program like all this stuff is is great work and it takes it takes a very large village right to get that stuff to happen so yeah and it's it's funny story i hadn't met sally i mean i photographed sally but i'd never met her until kazakhstan the world's in kazakhstan and it you know it, we were kind of like missing each other and stuff like that and when we finally met it was like we were on separate inseparable that week just because it's like you are so cool like she's <laughs> she's just a great she's a great person and um we had a, we had a good time and we, it just, life is like that, right? You just, you meet people when you're supposed to meet them and yeah. So she's coming on next week. Can't wait. All right. All right. Yes. Cool. So I'm going to learn. Hello. I will. I'm going to learn all about the foundation and you know, just her career and the whole journey. And, and that part about Trisha Saunders, I just wrote mm -hmm. down Trish on a notepad. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. They had to sue AAU. Yeah. Like kind of on the spot they didn't want her to wrestle and his, her dad had to sue like the night before or something to get her to wrestle. I have photos. If you ever want to see him um, of that, because well, crazy That's a documentary works. it is, it, it would be a great one. Um, but how, how the community works, I, it, it, something triggered in my mind one day and I called my dad and he kind of explained it. He remembers everything and he, he explained it. And then um, I go on Twitter and within an hour, not only did I have like the event and the date, uh, but then Trisha came on and she's like, Hey, here are some photos of it uh, with my dad coaching me. And I'm like, this is so crazy. I mean, I was there. It, it, it's so wild. It's a good story. That is a great story, man. Yeah. We might just, I, if someone else doesn't do it, we might have to collaborate on a little short film on that. Cause that's, that's pretty monumental. And you think about the history of women's wrestling and where we're at now. Yeah. So, so Tony, as we wind down, I, I wanted mm -hmm. to ask you a couple of gear questions and we'll move mm -hmm. into the seminal, how did wrestling change your life? <laughs> so I do love the gear stuff like you do. What lenses are you shooting with when you go to tournaments? So, so my gear is Nikon and the, the primary sports lens out there is a 70 to 200 um, and then F2.8 and the two point and all of my lenses are 2.8. And I don't mean that as a flex, but just, you know, you need um, a lens that can can work in low light and bad light um, with good action. So uh, the, the workhorse is a 70 to 200, which is wide enough to kind of get when the action comes at you and, and wide, well, long enough to reach across the mat for like uh, coaches and that sort of thing. And then and then my favorite lens is a 300 prime and a prime is that it's um it's a lock lens. So it's, it's, uh, you know, it, it's not a zoom lens and they're able to put more, um, better glass in that. So it's big and heavy and it's a two point as well. And it is so crystal clear and sharp and you, you can see, um, uh, the photos. So the ones that are like really uptight and close, or they're like in the coach's corner and stuff. And I'm shooting across the mat and I'll, 
I'll, I'll, I'll have to put down one camera and pick up the other very quickly. And I get bad tennis elbow, tennis elbow doing that. Um, and so I've created and built a couple of devices that would like shorten the time from me having to set down the 70 to 200 and pick up the 300. Um, that amount of time you're trying to shave just a couple of the putting up. Yeah. Just like a second, or two seconds. Yeah. I'll show you next time we're together. Um, it's basically like, I have this really fancy monopod that I've pieced together, like Frankenstein together so that the 70, the 300 is sitting right next to me. And so I'll just, I'll just put the 7,200 to the side and reach over and I can unlock it on a foot pad and then like have mobility with it. And it's really just for walkouts and certain stuff, or if it's blood time, you know, you get really nice close-up shots and that sort of thing. Um, and then kind of lock that back into place so that I'm not having to pick it up awkwardly on my right side. And then, and then, and it's about 12 pounds with the camera, um, which doesn't sound a lot, but doing that repeatedly and doing that awkwardly where it's, your kind of hand is out to the side. Um, so anything to shorten that time and, uh, limit the discomfort because discomfort, people don't think about this, but when you're in the zone and you're really trying to focus and trying to let this flow through you, um, any discomfort or distraction is bad, mm -hmm. right? So if your if your feet are cold, if your if your hands are sore, if your elbow hurts, if there's a mom yelling in the stands, uh, if the Iranians are blowing whistles or whatever, like any any distraction is can be bad. Um, and so you want to limit that. You want to be kind of I, I won't say as comfortable as possible because you can't just sit back and relax, but you have to have all these outside distractions. Um, you know, limit the outside distractions as much as possible. And the amount of so, reps you'd be doing that would be a lot. Yeah, exactly. hundreds of times. You know? Exactly. And yeah. And so then to finish that, uh, the, the actual question, um, I have kind of a medium wide lens of 24 to 70. And so, um, you know, ultimately I can go 24 to 70, 70 to 200, and then a 300 prime. And so that kind of covers like from wide to in pretty tight. And I'll often have those close to me. I, I don't carry them around every single time. Like at Fargo, I'll just kind of leave the 300 sometimes if I'm, I have to run over to Matt 25, you know, um, but um, they're with me usually most of the time. And the, the shorter lens is strapped onto a belt clip. Um, and yeah, so you're, well, you're carrying a lot of gear. What model of Nikon do you use? Uh, so I, I have, I have the one of their most recent generation. So the D six, and then I have two D five bodies and I have a D four S that's just kind of collecting dust. And I do have a Z six, I guess it's right there. Um, mm -hmm. so I, people kept asking me about mirrorless and I wanted to test it and I don't have a travel camera. I mean, I literally have all these big cameras and I don't have like a little camera to take on vacation. Um, so I got, I got a mirrorless and I want to test it out and run it through its paces at a, at a wrestling meet sometime. And you got extra batteries and SD cards and all that for everything. All of that. Yeah. 128 gig, uh, cards for all of the, all of the bodies. Then they, most of them have dual ports. So, you know, those are doubled up because I, it would, it would frustrate me to no end to run out of space and if something for the world, you have to delete you have to, you know, you, you do run out of space and that's why I I'll back up and triplicate, um, in my hotel room. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, I'll delete the SD cards each morning. And then even my camp, my, my computer runs out of space and it's really 
very painful and hard for me to delete off my computer because then you're you're relying on your hard drives but or the hard drives will run out of space like the portable ones so it's you know i i just have invested so that i don't get frustrated and i don't make mistakes and accidentally delete shots or lose them i love what you said earlier though about keeping your day job i'm the same way Mm -hmm. i've been doing this three years i do have a day job like you in tech and so we're fortunate in that sense but it takes the pressure off and it also gives you the flexibility to to tool around where you don't have to everything is like you're pinching a penny because that's all you're doing you know yeah yeah 100 percent um yeah i i just it, it my day job affords my professional hobby right is how i would put it right and so i can afford to travel and i don't have to penny pinch too much um you know you do have to be smart but yeah you can afford these things yeah and i think that's helpful um, and my gear, I'll change out my gear, you know, like at some point I'll, I, I don't, I'll sell stuff every once in a while, but, um, I'll, you know, I'll probably get another D six and then, and then sell, like, I should sell the D four S it's just old, but, um, you know, you're talking about like 500 bucks or less. Mm-hmm. So sometimes the hassle of selling it isn't even worth it, but, um, yeah. Um, and, th- and then yeah. other thing I was curious about is when you go to a tournament, do you plan out which matches you're going to watch like at the nationals? So, you know, which wrestlers to get shots of? Well, it, it's two parts. Sometimes I'll contract for schools and I used to contract a lot and it, I would make some money at the NCAAs, but I would contract for like five schools and they all want their shots at the right. You know, I'm getting texts at the end of the session saying, Hey, where are our photos? And so I'll contract for a couple schools. Um, a lot of schools at this point, I've gotten to the point where I'll, 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 I'll be a specialist in the sense that they'll have contracts with other shooters. Uh, but if I get a great shot, they'll, we'll just talk about that individually. Right. Um, or if they get one kid that makes a really strong run, um, you know, they know they can come to me for photos and stuff. Uh, but yeah, if I'm shooting for a school, then I kind of have to focus on their kids. Um, but if I'm, if I'm not per se, or, you know, I, I, am pretty strategic. I'm very in tune with what's going on in the wrestling. I listen to a lot of podcasts and stuff like that. And so, um, I'll pre-plan a bit, uh, I'll, I'll Sharpie, a, a bracket and be like, oh, if per, the nationals is really hard to keep track of what's going on. And you kind of never know when that crazy Kimura is going to happen, you know, and you might be like four mats away and it takes, you know, five minutes to get from one side to the other. And so you can't really run. So then it's like, you know, you just get your longest lens and try to hope to get a shot with people not in the way, but something like CKLV where I kind of can run around to the mats. I'll, I'll, I'll tend to follow bigger names most of the time. Usually one, one trick is that like, so there's a theory. It's like in the early rounds, you might not want to shoot like the big names because you're going to get them at the later rounds and the semis and finals and stuff. But also you can get some great shots because they end up hitting the, you know, say lesser opponents and they'll do something wild and crazy. This is like a good in Greco and freestyle and stuff like that. It's like, yeah. Yeah. So I got a really good shot of Gable Steveson at CKLV a couple of years ago against a Michigan kid. And it was like in the early rounds. And, you know, that's one where it's like, yeah, I could be shooting other folks who might not make it to the semis or finals, but you know, this guy's kind of kicking the crap out of somebody and makes for good photos. I just love how meticulous you are with everything. Last thing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's anyone who has like a deep obsession with any craft. It's fascinating to me and let alone within the wrestling world, you said that wrestling has shaped you. It's been a part of your life. So take it however you want, but 
Like what's been the, the biggest takeaway that you, that you carry with you every day? I, I think that uh, a, an understanding of hard work and, um, and an appreciation of hard work. I mean, what I'm doing is giving back to these athletes that are working so hard and going through that grind. And, you know, I, I, I think that it's been said on this podcast many times, but it's just really understanding that um, good things usually take a lot of hard work results, good results, being, being great at something takes a lot of hard work and wrestling will instill that in you. Um, you have to get up at 5 AM to do those early morning workouts and um, you have to stay late and you have to cut weight and diet and dieting, cutting weight. Last, it's a 24 hour thing. You don't get a break from that. You mm-hmm. want to go to the movies all you're thinking about is the popcorn, right? When you're cutting weight, you know, anything you do, you're just like, what kind of food am I not going to be able to eat when I go there? Um, so it's very hard. It's, it's very mentally uh, difficult and, but the rewards are, can be very great. And so I think that's the biggest takeaway and it, maybe it's cliche at this point, but I don't think, I think so. Uh, I, I just, the, you know, the delayed gratification is so important in every facet of life. And it's like, that's what it comes yeah. down to, you know? Yeah. You know, something came up at the gala that I thought, cause I try to explain this to my wife. I'm like, I don't know why I'm obsessed about this and doing all of this work. I don't know what it is, but somebody was giving a speech. It may have been Terry Steiner or someone. And they talked about it just being a way of life. And, and that's very sort of uh ninja or, or I don't know, kind of, Asian, like uh, you, you think these sumo wrestlers and that sort of thing. But I turned to my wife and I'm like, that, that, that might explain it or, or help explain it. Like, this is just, this is a way of life. This is, you know, this is a religion of sorts. Right. And we have this community and being part of that in a, in a way that I can give to the whole community um, really motivates me. And so all of that work is just, is worth it because it's just giving back it and acknowledging all of the hard work um, that the wrestlers and coaches and parents go through. The parents are the unsung heroes, you know, really are. And you think yeah. about all the, uh, all the athletes who you've had the pleasure of shooting and just how their own journeys are so long in themselves. And so I love that you do it with that kind of passion in mind. Tony Rotondo, it's been an absolute pleasure getting to know you over the past three years. And especially now, man, this has been awesome. So glad we were able to have you on the show. Thanks again for coming, man. Thanks, man. Appreciate it very much. Yes, sir. Have a great day. All right. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wrestling Changed My Life. To see video clips from this interview, please go to Instagram at Wrestling Changed My Life. This episode was proudly presented by Spartan Combat. The Spartan Combat Nationals are returning to Jacksonville, Florida, April 8th through the 10th, 2022. Register now at SpartanCombat.com.